eerste ervaring. En nu, ladies en gentlemen, uw attention, please. Big decisions have even bigger consequences in the world of marketing leadership, where data informs everything, second chances are rare, and ROI is no longer the only metric that matters. Please join us as we go inside the funnel. Welcome to Inside the Funnel with Dan Temby, Jenna Watson, and me, Nasa Salul. Today is an auspicious day for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that Dan has joined us as an Oxford man as of this morning. Congratulations, Dan. I'm feeling so honored, Nasser. Thank you. I was into AstraZeneca before it was cool. You know, I just like to point that out. Uh, so way ahead of everybody you else. You were an early uh, adopter by 24 hours. <laughs> 24 hours. That's right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's funny about AstraZeneca. I, I like to think about it as the alternative or punk rock vaccine, and one day will be a badge of honor. So all the older people are taking their Brian Adams, Pfizer vaccines, and they're all suspicious of the vaccine that looks and smells like Nirvana. And then Gen X comes along and says, inject this directly into my veins. (laughs) Right? Everyone knows exactly how old we are. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's too bad people can't see my eyes rolling on a podcast. But, uh, they can hear, they they can could, hear it, they I would. think. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It, it's fine. It's fine. Nobody should worry about any of this. Vaccines are like dogs, right? They're all good. They're all good vaccines, They're all Dan. good. That's right. So the, this, this Dan getting vaccinated today is a consolation prize because he is today only the second coolest Aussie on this podcast Damn since it. we are joined by a special guest. David Shing, known as Shingy, is an Australian futurist, speaker, creative director, strategic digital consultant, and entrepreneur. Known for his performative persona and his bold and polarizing moniker, the Digital Prophet, Shingy is a multidimensional creative who specializes in advising clients about inventive, effective, and sustainable approaches to optimizing brand value within the digital landscape. He is passionate about educating big brands about the unique opportunities afforded by emerging digital, social, and mobile technologies. Welcome to the show, Shingy. Hey, guys. What's up? (laughs) Yay. Hey. And I probably wrote that, right? That seems a little long-winded and verbose, but whatever, dude. I'll take it. (laughs) If there's a a group that knows about being long-winded and verbose, it is certainly this group. So it's a delight. (laughs) You're in in good company here, Shingy. (laughs) <laughs> I do like the preamble about all of this sort of vaccine bits and bobs too. It's really interesting how that's kind of the introduction to any party today, which is so very sad of us, isn't yeah. it? Well, I saw I saw something the other day about dating profiles that specify the vaccine that people took. So, you know, there's a Moderna gang and a Pfizer gang and, uh-huh. and all of that. So it's like, uh, it's like Android iOS all over again. Big time, yeah. isn't it? Modern Moderna and all that sort of stuff. I heard it. I heard it. I heard it. Awesome. <laughs> so, so Shingy, I've been. I'm delighted to have you here today because I've. Oh, I'm thrilled I've, to be here. I've been observing your career at a distance with almost a, a sense of awe. That the simple fact that you know you you are known as the digital prophet um, is a singular achievement. Um, how on earth did that happen? <laughs> Okay, so when did we we met in South by Southwest one one year? Do you remember when that was? Many. It, uh, it was roughly? probably about three four years ago. I want to say. 
Oh, it had to be longer than that, I suspect. But let me... Uh, I, I suspect. But let me backtrack. So, oh, God, if you dig into, into my history... I'm a designer by trade. Uh, you know, I hail from where Dan comes from. Mm-hmm. A, a little bit more mature. Just a cooler, just a cooler city, but let's not get into that. Well, you know what? Actually, I'm not from a city, mate. I'm from the bush. Really? So I should say that. Um, yeah, I'm from Armidale. Oh, so wow. country, I'm a country boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, I know a little bit about churches yeah, too. There, I bet Brady, you but, yeah. but I did spend a little bit of time in Sydney before I sodded off to the US um, to the sheer awe and flabbergastness of my family because for them, they just thought that only Americans wore fanny packs and trucker caps and, mm-hmm. you know, they turn up in the shores of Sydney and that was it. But they couldn't quite understand why I was going to do it. So I had this idea, you know, back in the day, I, I'm a designer by trade, but I really sort of wanted to understand a closeness to technology. And and that was something that I really had a passion for. And so design meets technology. And I didn't really know what that meant until, you know, I helped, helped with a startup. But that doesn't sort of give you much history as to why I ended up as the digital prophet. What happened throughout that early part of my career is it didn't go so well. I was a part of the failing dot-com boom right. <laughs> and you know because the flip side of that is that not everybody came out about unscathed and that's me man so i'm not one of those guys who punched out and is sitting on a yacht somewhere truth be known i would be if that <laughs> that's exactly what i'd be doing if i did do that by the way <laughs> never bloody hear from me again uh and you know the covid would have to catch me a whole nother different way so that wasn't the case so i ended up and and the reason i give you this back-winded story is that back back in the day you do interviews with people over the phone and uh, you know, convince a young young gentleman who was from Deloitte to uh, not be a partner there and chase the consulting world and come join the big bad internet as my head of e-commerce. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time either. But he came on board the first day that I came into the into the business and we remained very dear friends. But when you know when it all went sort of pear shaped, he went off to get a real job and he joined AOL. Mm-hmm. And through our comings and goings, we we. We sort of intersected again and he called me and said, hey, Shingy, I know you're coming to Europe. Do you want to come help me out? And I said, who are you working for, mate? He goes, AOL. And I said, wait, what? Um, two things. You're working for AOL and I, I, you want me to work for you? How's this going to work out? So anyhow, I joined him as the, the um, head of marketing for the New Territories, which was 11 countries. Uh, Tim Armstrong came on board, as you guys know. Superman joined AOL, which was just absolutely fantastic for us. And, you know, I came on full-time as the head of media and marketing at that point, got a bit of a promotion and looked after 13 countries, including UK, France and Germany. And we ended up, you know, wanting to sort of put that mar- that brand in the marketplace. And it was great because it had been there before, but we had some new territories. However, we needed to reboot AOL. So I was part of the team to reboot AOL and we did all that sort of guff, which is amazing. But when you work for a big company, when one division performs poorly, everybody suffers. And because you're part of a European division, we were always smaller and had less budget. It's like, hey, Shingy, thanks for helping us with our values, our missions, our new iconography, but we're not going to give you much marketing dollars. So I decided at that point in time to go into the market to talk about the market and hopefully get what we could get out of it. And it was interesting because I'd go and sit on these panels with somebody who's, hey, representing AOL Media, blah, blah, awesome, tell us about your things. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about my things. I want to talk about the bloody thing, which nobody wants to talk about, which is this bloody industry. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, my God, who's this guy? Get him off stage as quickly as humanly possible. So I ended up coming back on stage presenting. Mm-hmm. And that's really where it started. So part of my gig was to talk about the industry at large and we as a byproduct would get the benefit of that. That's where it all came from. 
And at one point, Tim said, let's move you back to New York. You can be our full-time evangelist. We had him at Google. I'm like, no, not interested in being the evangelist. Totally not interested in it. Google had him. IBM has him. I don't know. Everybody's got him. Let me come up. I'll be the prophet. They're like, ha, ha, hee, hee. Yay, sure, let's be the digital prophet. And then, oh, my God, did the industry just take that on as something to, to ram against, which I totally knew I was going to. But being creative, I couldn't come into the industry and just be another evangelist or a forecaster. I needed to be an antagonist. And so apparently I was. And that's where it all came from. And can I also say, so let me just say how this really, how this really got catapulted. So I'd say things like in 2011, 2012, I think in 2011, I, I did an interview with Forbes and, and I said, apps were dead. And, and that was the headline. I'm like, the context is this, the iOS on the smartphone had not changed. So apps really weren't going to be that powerful because the iOS hadn't really changed much. So that's why I think it was all about the mobile web because these apps weren't really being charismatic and, boy, did I get that wrong and taken out of context. And then 2000-ish, 2013 or something, I don't know, 14 or somewhere like that, I ended up on a TV show called The Cycle, MSNBC. Couldn't be more pedestrian, the audience. God bless them. And what was amazing about that is, you know, I turn up, big hair, nail polish, title called The Prophet, and talking about things like defriend, unfollow. And they were like, oh, my God, this guy's from fucking Mars. <laughs> and, and I crashed the internet. Awesome. I was trending more than Social Olympics or something. It was just a beautiful time for me to retire from Twitter, by the way. So that was, uh, that was how that all happened, mate. And that's how, you know, the, the trolls came out and tried to destroy me. And all they did was make me more popular. God bless mm-hmm. them. So thanks. Have at it. Those without hair, I have it. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know who you're talking to. Wow. You're a guy who understands how to make an impact. There's no question about that. And and I think okay. one of the things that we wanted to talk with you about is yeah. you speak with a lot of very senior people at a lot of very, very big brands. Um, and we wanted to get your perspective, your take in an aggregate way around what the industry has gone through, what the industry is thinking about, where it's going now that we're beginning to emerge from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But before we do that... I, I want us to kind of cast our, our minds back towards the beginning of the pandemic and throughout. You know, at the beginning, when we think creatively, it seemed like every brand was doing the same thing. There was a run on anybody who was a somber pandemic pianist in terms of any type of advertising. So w- once we look past that garbage, which brands, in your opinion, have pivoted the best and why? And, mm-hmm. and what were the themes yeah. that resonated the most with audiences? Yeah, really, really good question. And what I think is really interesting around that question is that it, it affected us all personally at a level that we'd never seen before. So it really was in unison. It really was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of like, oh, my, is this going to be like three months out? Shall we, how do we actually take this? How do, we, how do we sort of steady the calm and the chaos? And so just like everybody else, or I hope like everybody else, we all acted the same. It was kind of this kind of fear, uncertainty, and this incredible amount of you couldn't see past your nose, really. You know, it's funny now, so I don't have a telly, mate, and I decided to subscribe to TV because I thought if people are going to lock 
onto these themes, they're going to want to know where they're going to get their information from, from a depth perspective, and not just read about it. So what's the news cycle up to? And when you talk about that somber TV stuff, I, I wanted to see what the ads were doing. And boy, was Adlan in trouble. Mm-hmm. because it was either the somber music that you're talking about or everybody would establish exactly the same thematics. We were established 100 years ago, in 1978 when we started. And so these, there were these very good mythologies on how to actually establish calm for people. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was kind of blind in my mind because it was a perfect time for people to listen. Oh, by the way, if those ads weren't running, which they are important for some brands, and certainly the PSA ads were really important, it was the Jinsu knife trying to be sold to you in primetime TV. I'm like, oh, my God, it's like the, it's the power of two worlds here. And I just didn't know. It was just a, I, it was always primetime television. Someone's trying to push a pillow down my throat or something. It was just the weirdest thing to me, man. It was just the juxtaposition of it was so strange. And so I think this is the, 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 the brands that were the most powerful, the ones that didn't say anything. They were quiet. They quit quietly, 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 listen, 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 listen. Because they acted just like we were. And I really respected that. A brand that would pop up and say, hey, man, we're here for you. I'm like, here for me how? Because you don't understand what I'm going through. Because I can't tell you what I'm going through. Because you're not on a platform that I would talk to you anyway. Mm. So don't try and humanize your brand right now. Shut the hell up. And the brands that did relate to me, you know, one that I've talked about before, which I really do, I just adored it, was BMW Motorrad. The bike division of BMW just came out with a snapshot of an iPhone and said, the road is calling, which I thought, wow, it's one thing you can do in isolation, jump on a motorcycle if you have one. If you don't, it's kind of a a little aspirational tell. The other brand that I thought was really interesting, you know, in the UK, they haven't had a product called Twirl uh, Orange flavoured Twirl for, I don't know, a decade. And they were listening to people talk about, you know, things that they really enjoyed, like, the, you know, the chocolate-flavoured... Sorry, the orange-flavoured cho- chocolate. You know, when we grew up, Dan, you probably Jaffa's. remember we had Jaffa's oh or something. Yeah, Guilford they, they Jaffa. Were, yeah, lovely, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah they'd probably kill you today. Yeah, they probably, probably would. Full of bloody true. corn syrup or something. <laughs> but what's amazing about those things, you know, the orange-flavoured chocolate, there was a nostalgic bit for you and I and, you know, apparently a bunch of people in the UK. And so, you know, Cadbury came out with a pre-sale on a, on a chocolate bar for an orange-flavoured twirl. I thought, well, how ingenious is this? These guys haven't made this product. They wouldn't have made this product unless they sat back and listened and realised that people really want something. The other thing that I thought was really ambitious was by, you know, if I look at what Rob Master did over at Unilever, you know, in Ben & Jerry's, which, you know, in their portfolio is an incredible brand, in the middle of summer, so we're thinking in March, April, May, June, July-ish sort of time frame, there was more demand for ice cream than ever before. So how do you, if you can't have instant gratification because all these stores are shut down, drone it out to them in delivery. I thought that was really quite amazing. KFC, they listened to people and said, hey, we can't actually serve you at our restaurants but why don't you have a crack at doing your own best version of the secret herbs and spices and then they'd rat on people and say that's the worst thing i'd ever seen (laughs) why does your chicken look like it's got dandruff on it you might want to leave it to us when we can open again and then you know the one that i thought was just genius as always was what fernando did over at burger king he's now moved on to activision you guys know but i you know everything he touched was was just amazing why because he approaches his brand with an open hand and he doesn't do things, or they didn't do things, Burger King. I won't give him all the credit, but I do think he's a bloody genius. I think the things that they did were just things that actually people would help move forward. And it goes out of the realm of marketing and advertising. So they did this piece in, in France where they just came out and said, here, we know that the bodegas are closed or the, or the supermarkets are closed, yeah. but here are all the ingredients to make a la, la Wapa. 
They also in the Middle East came out and said, hey, we know that you guys have been, you know, jobs are going left and right, but just pay us what you can and we believe you'll come back. They also took out an ad and said, yeah, go buy and shop at places like McDonald's because, you know, there are other people working there. Yeah, I remember that We need people to be employed. You know, and I thought all of these things were really kind of like, oh, my God, somebody's saying exactly what we need them to say, leadership. And it also comes from this point of, It's been overplayed, I know, know, when we talk about empathy and marketing. But the truth is that is a side-by-side empathetic moment. When I'm standing in front of you and bocking and tackling and trying to advertise with happy hands, we know we have blindness. But when you come alongside somebody and say, I'm going to give you value today because I know ultimately you're going to come back and give me value if I'm a beloved brand in your thought process. And if I am, awesome. If I'm not, I need an opportunity to come back and allow you to fall back in love with me. So I'm sorry that's a long-winded answer to that question, but I think it's needed because, NASA, we've seen it over 12 months now, the brands that sort of do things that are hard, that's really a theme that I, I really want to lock onto here. Doing things that are easy. So right prior to COVID, we were talking about automated everything. We were talking about the machines taking over. Programmatic is at the heart and soul of everything that we do. But the truth is those tough things as well to understand how you can really do one-to-one marketing en masse, I'm seeing those things as being a proliferative of opportunity right now because there is calm in the chaos. Otherwise, it's just more noise and it's harder to cut through. Mm-hmm. So more is more is not the go in my mind. Yeah, so let, Is that helpful? I'm sorry. That's, no, that's awesome. Let's talk about that a little bit because – that we are here for you message after about what a week of having every advertiser do it we were absolutely tired of their platitudes right we're here for you okay great let's carry on so but we made it mostly we're almost there we've got vaccines we've we're rounding the corner to some level of partial herd immunity depending on where you live but knowing that and knowing what brands had the opportunity to learn during this whole thing what do you think that they should be focused on now as we're, as we're seeing the light, as we're turning that corner, and how is that really going to be a lot different than it has been yeah, before? I, yeah. Okay, so before I, before I answer that directly, Jenna, which is an incredible question, let me talk about what I think the pull thread is out of all this thing. So I had an opportunity uh, to speak to a bunch of CMOs one-on-one, but more publicly. And in the green room discussions that I'd have, and I did this for Advertising Week, at the end of last year. And the pull thread for me was really interesting. And it was, it was very wide. It was from the head of design at Barbie all the way through to some of the big CPG brands that you really, really know. One of the questions I'd ask them is, in a time that's quiet for you, can you come up with something that feels like innovation? And is it, is it, is it worthy of just having that discussion? And I'll tell you right now, most of CPG brands said, there's absolutely no capacity for that. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, we can't even fulfill, you know, we, we don't even know what our fulfillment ordering look like right now. And secondly... That's not what people are asking for. People are asking for one big thing. I'm like, whoa, what is it? They're looking for comfort. I'm like, whoa, whoa. And that comes from booze brands mm-hmm. to food brands. Obviously, booze brands. I'm going <laughs> looking for comfort every single day. Just saying it makes me wet in the lips. But there's also this kind of, there's this really, under, there's this constant undertow of nostalgia. And so if you look at somebody like Smuckers, they can't get enough peanut butter and jam. So they're not looking at innovation. They're looking at making sure they can deliver the basics for making people feel like they're comforted. And by the way, this is not a new trend. This has been coming a long time. This has been coming when, you know, guys walk around with bushy beards and check shirts in Bushwick in, in New York City, which is not needed. 
it's it's it, people that are lumberjacks out in the middle of nowhere need that thing, man. But there's a nostalgia to it, and the, and we haven't been able to put our finger on it, but it's actually there. So I only give you that context to say that we learned and we've learned that there's some things that give this sort of overarching sort of moving trends to say that yeah, people want comfort, they want to feel calm, they want to feel things that make them feel like there is going to be better. Now, how does that apply to brands? I think the most important things brands learned in this, frankly, is to rebrief, to actually get that right. And that's great because what you guys do is completely changing the paradigm generally because when you're sitting there and you think, I have pre-planned 12 months out and I've done it in all the ways that make me feel good. I'm going to meet all these perceived KPIs and God bless. And then this thing happened. It's like, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And... So it's not just rebriefing themselves. It's also teaching the agency what they need. It allows somebody to navel gaze and say, what can we do better to help them do better and therefore make it feel more realistic about what we do moving forward? And it's lots of experimentation is going to happen through that. But I think the lesson learned is you can throw out all your media plans and just get f- focused on the things that you care about because – you know, I don't think breadth is really what it's about. It's about that depth. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really, really hard to do that. So the old saying of context matters, build good content, put it in smart places, is super easy to say. It is incredibly difficult yeah. to do, particularly when you don't know what that means. Yep. Because what you've done is things that feel very traditional, although you've put your, your bent on it, suddenly you think it's fascinating. Now, at the same time... There was, there was something that I said a while ago, the defriend unfollow thing. I said that Instagram was the last of the open social networks. Well, I had that right for a hot moment. And then, boy, did that go wrong because of COVID. And then suddenly TikTok comes along and that's open, open. Uh-huh. Not necessarily in a good way in my mind. <laughs> but, hey, whatever, man. People need release. And that's what I think TikTok re- represents incredibly well. But what it has shown us is the democratization of the creator set. So any brand that understands it's not about just consuming content anymore. It's about enabling people to be part of a brand in a way that does feel right and not just sponsored. I think that's kind of open to whole new pioneering that we haven't even scratched the surface on today. And we can learn from people like in the music industry when we realize that the new 360s that happened like 15 years ago when somebody's career was not just about selling CDs but had to be everything else mm-hmm. – I would say that's exactly what has to happen for each brand today. So, so rationalizing the por- sorry, rationalizing portfolio is one thing, making sure they skinny down to things that matter. Understanding that I think a brand does need to think in 360. And the last piece was uh, reflecting upon what those cultural changes are as marketing in the right context. I was just thinking, because you talked about nostalgia previously mm. and, and being an undercurrent and a theme throughout the pandemic. And that makes perfect sense where you're hearkening back to a better time. But but you also use this word release. And and I I see that as a thing going forward. Like there's this gigantic pent up need for release almost. Right. Like mm. the building and building and building. Um, so so do you see that kind of tonality changing moving forward? Yeah, so attitudinally, you know, if we, if we were to draw a, a bell curve, uh, the, the challenge with that is it still feels like a lot of people are stuck in the middle of that where the big bump is and you've got a left or right and you've got to be either on one side of that or the other. You can't be in the middle anymore. In the middle is noisy, the middle is soft, the middle is safe 
And that's not what people are expecting, are they? Very quickly, we've rationalised that you have to have a point of view. You definitely have to be part of the, the conversation if that's part of your culture. Uh, part of that starts internally, by the way. So that navel-gazing I'm talking about is internally you need to determine what those values are. And if you don't live them internally, then you definitely cannot talk about them externally mm-hmm. because the world is standing there recording you in real time. And so we're at a different place. And so I, I do think that you can't just be in the middle anymore. You have to take a stance. And there are brands who've tried that in the past who definitely led that way. I think Heineken did a really nice play of that about five years ago where they had the alternate point of view and ultimately people would sort of blend in the middle and they, you know, the cliche at the end is that let's talk about that over a beer. Mm-hmm. And it was really, but it worked <clears throat> and it felt right. But when it doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel natural, then that's where you have this sort of brand conflict, I think. But there are brands that deserve to, to make sure that they can mediate, but most of us have to make a position left or right, in my opinion. Cool. Hey, Shane, you're shifting gears a little bit and we'll bring it down into something a little more... Um, Tactical and specific. A little earlier, you mentioned something about, you know, get great creative and put it in smart places. And the decisions about those smart places rely a lot on data. And obviously, you know, we've been talking a lot lately about just the disruption in, you know, people's models and people's data sets and how the preceding year and a half has just turned everything on its head. You know, that coupled with, I'm sure you're aware, a lot of the changes happening in and around the third party data landscape and the things that we've often relied on to fill those holes and make those smart decisions. Um, What are your sort of thoughts on the way, you know, the brands that are going to win are going to navigate that space going forward? Yeah. Wow. Great. Why don't you start with a really easy question? (laughs) Thanks very much. What a bugger. If you could just solve Uh, all of that for all of us, we'd be most appreciative. Two two (laughs) things we need to be acutely aware of, right? So we were kind of set up for that more in Europe a while ago when we knew the cookie list was coming, right? And so that was that was part of it was understanding you had to flush your cookies and do all those things and just be a good publisher. I knew that as somebody who ran media. If you think about all the dynamics of where we are today, by the way, the IAB published something and said eight out of ten marketers believe that when cookies go away, it's not going to affect their marketing. Are you absolutely off They're their high. rocker? Oh, wow. I don't know who those eight, eight out of ten are because I hope that number is not correct because that is that, – no, well, firstly – no wonder the average CMOs in the gig 18 months because they're going to cycle out of that thing real fast <laughs> if they don't believe that's the world. So there's a gland grab for first-party data, as you know. And that is a kind of a backlash, I would say, against all the social currencies. The smart brands, let me just be very frank, are trying to use the social mining, in my mind, to get people off their platforms and on their own, which is kind of a weird thing because about 10 years ago, I was saying to myself, could you ever imagine a multi-billion dollar brand, like a high fashion brand like Prada, ever putting a Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever logo on their store because they don't own those goddamn domains. And not only that, when you go there, you, the, the place you're forced into as a brand to express your creativity looks like chambray shirt and docker pants. Right. <laughs> it's a blue heading with a 970 grid in it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I look at that and think, oh, how is that possible? And then you walk past these luxury brands and there's these goddamn logos. And you think to yourself, wow, they don't own the audience and they're pushing their audiences to these places where they think, let me take a little snippet of that crowd and let me see if I can understand what that means. Dan, at the end of the day, if you can support attribution, boom, we're there. But the real problem is how can you do that when you don't own the data? You're always just guessing Mm. that it's about this persona and you've always got delayed attribution. Mm -hmm. Bloody hell, that's called television. 
And we moved out of that, I thought. Yep. But that's just me. So if you look at all these other places that are meant to assemble audiences that you're meant to own, but then you're held to, to say, actually, you don't own it. Ha ha, you get to rent it. It's not great. Smart brands are going to collect first-party data, but they've got to collect in a way that feels like, why would I give it to you? What am I going to do? So for me, it's, it's off media if that makes sense. It's off digital, back to your own and operated to figure out what you're going to do. And here's the opportunity. They don't know what to do with it. Oh, yeah. That's my next and, question. You know, you, you foreshadow. Hey, mate, think about this. Dan, remember five years ago, big data, big data, yeah. big data, big data. I go to a big data conference. I'm like, how is this thing called big data? Yeah. I mean, it's sure. Call it what you want, big data. But the, the real truth is the little decisions that are made with mm-hmm. it. That's the thing. It's not about big data. You can collect that crap all you like, but you don't glean any insights. Right. And that's what people look at. They look at, wow, this is amazing. What does this mean? So what's, what's holding uh, them back there? I don't know. That big data conversation, you're quite right. You know, volume, velocity, variety, it's been coming at us for years. Everyone's been getting their arms around it. We've just published a study that we uh, commissioned Forrester to do for us uh, that has come yeah, back correct. with, you know, the number one insight, 85% of brands are not doing anything meaningful with their data. And we're like... Why is that happening? Like, because it's funny when we talk to a new prospect, we're like, oh, you know, these are the things you should be interested in. Oh, yeah, we're doing that. We're working on that. Everyone's working on something. They're all doing something with something. But no one's actually doing anything. And we struggle sometimes to understand what is actually holding people back. Is it talent? Is it the desire to move forward? Uh, Is there other things at play within these organizations? What do you think is getting in the way of people getting those you know, small, meaningful insights into their, into their plans? Three things. One is they don't really know how to, how to actually glean the data. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to read it in a way that actually gives them objectivity around the subject that they're trying to qualify. Because if you're able to really glean an insight out of data and find out, wow, look at this, all of these people are saying this about us or this is about what's interesting, that could actually be the spark of a brief for a creative idea. Instead, you outsource ideas to somebody else and say, this is what I, yeah. I don't know, you tell me. And they're so close to it. They forget that they're the ones who actually should own the purse strings and the keys to where they're driving. But they've forgotten that. Yeah. And they've lost that muscle memory. So one of the big trends, as you know, is to insource creative agencies. Great, awesome. And wow, what a massive problem that creates. Because now, have not only did you able to push around an agency externally and amplify when ready, if you're going to do it internally... Now you've become an HR nightmare because now you've got to think about retention mm-hmm. and now you've got to think about how do you come up with things that are super interesting for them to work on, blah, blah, blah. The whole <laughs> thing has become, oh, dude. I mean, it, the whole thing is just cyclic. The real issue for me is there isn't a plan around data and data-driven, actionable ideas don't actually become the top of the forecast funnel in my right. mind if we were talking about that. And truthfully, it's really this. Mm-hmm. If you think about companies that are molded around making great decisions through data, they tend to disrupt categories. Amazon's a classic example. Think about this. A few years ago, when they came out and said, hey, we're going to do drone delivery, what did everyone do? They went rushing for drone deliveries. It's like, Amazon's doing it. We've got to get into it. Then they very quietly came out and said, hey, oh, we've got a bookshop over here. And that bookshop means that when you can order a book and it's not there, we're just going to be in the back printing it on demand. 
Yeah, we're not going to drone delivery. We're not drone delivering anything. That was that's a bloody placebo. That's a ridiculous idea. That was, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> Actually, we're opening up We're opening up bookshops. You know what? They sold a we're shitload of drones, though. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But I guess my point is... If you're able to actually focus on the things that matter to people and what matters to people is they want to sit down and read things still or they actually want a convenient uh, cashless, contactless shopping experience, all of the competitors were worried about during fulfilment. These guys were worried about being where the fulfilment should happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really interesting uh, uh, thing to focus on, which is if you've got this data at the tip of your nose and there's a ton of it, you've got to rationalise it. You've got to figure out what is it you care about that data. And data decisions and driving a business based on that will allow you to quickly amp up an idea. If it doesn't work, shut it down and move mm-hmm. on because the data is telling you it's a good idea. Not because you're a creative director or you think you're an ECD or you think you've got the best idea on planet Earth. Let's test, 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 test. And I'm hearing more of let's make sure we growth hack, growth hack, growth hack. Very unexciting. But those terms means that you can set something up, get something going. The data is telling you it's working. You've got new ways to actually measure that. Awesome. Then let's continue amplifying it. Mm. And then the rest of that stuff, if that machine's working really well, that can be more about experimentation in the big ideas that are creative that aren't aren't, aren't data-driven, but they're just gut-driven. But we've got to get more creative done in the head. At the moment, I still think it's about singular ideas and people have to move away from that because you have to have lots of ideas and you have to move at the speed of culture. And a lot of the infrastructure is not set up around that. It's a massive opportunity. Let me just dive into that a little bit more. I love companies like Shopify. Why do I love that? Because they've democratized the ability to set up a stop. Great. Got it. Awesome. But that's not why it's really interesting. They've also understood the wave of the culture of people in the workplace is more freelance or permalance. And what's amazing about that, they've created a secondary marketplace, which is, hey, you're an entrepreneur, Dan, you're selling shavers for your head awesome that's a great category (laughs) and given that's the case you suck at building out these beautiful infrastructures to be able to do Mm -hmm. that but you have a great idea they've created a secondary market that somebody can actually go out there and do that for them and so they're really part of that whole cycle of what's contagious at the moment when we think about digital Mm -hmm. because we came from the internet great we're still stuck in the middle of social which came along a long time ago you know, bloody hell, I think Facebook is probably 15, 16, 17 years old. And before that mm-hmm. was MySpace and Bebo and all those wonderful platforms. <laughs> and, so, and way before that was GeoCities, you know, and all that rubbish. So what's amazing is it's been around a long time. And then that moved into collaboration. You know, that moved into Uber and Airbnb. And then that moved into the, un- the, into the whole idea of autonomy which we're all still trying to grapple our heads around, but some of us just throw that into the intelligence basket. But what I'm saying is if you're able to level up and say, wow, if these are just things happening in the culture of the way people are living their lives, how can we facilitate that? Shopify is just one example of many that I think have done a really good job of adopting that. Mm-hmm. And that may not have been their initial, initial plan, but they sure have pivoted into it. So that, that's a data decision. So, anyway. so Shingy, you, you, you mentioned the word culture, and I think that's a really important word when we talk about data. Um, and when we think about organizations that aren't digital native organizations like an Amazon or mm. what have you, is, is that the critical piece? Because it's not for lack of or shortage of smart data analysts and, and data scientists working in these organizations. Is there a cultural barrier that is preventing the translation of that data into insight and then ultimately into action for the business? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you've answered that question yourself, which I absolutely, I completely and utterly agree. And the reason for that is it's, it seems kind of very unsexy to have all these data scientists in there doing their thing, but somebody has to help translate it. And the role of a smart marketer today is help that translation, that mm-hmm. translation layer because ultimately what will happen is that, you know, the, 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 I think the goal of data is the same goal that AI has ultimately. They're, t- they're here to tell you what to do. They just can't tell you how to do it. Mm-hmm. The how to do it really, that's the institution, I believe, of the modern marketer. But data, it will infer that to you to understand how that segmentation should look and what that first party should look like and blah, blah. And the closer you are to the data, the better the insights are going to be. But because a lot of people are renting all of that, they really don't know how to make it incredibly unique. Why? Because they've been on these other platforms that they don't own. So they're sort of held to those. And then they're flabbergasted when they realise that their, you know, cost, their acquisition cost, their CAC is absolutely yo-yoed and they don't know how to sustain mm-hmm. it. So I don't know, man. It's just a... I think that's a beautiful insight and I think that's an incredible way of putting it which is yeah there's just there's just a there's a miss and you, and it it hasn't been filled today because it's really hard and it's really new and why is it really new because we knew that within a couple of months the world can turn upside down and inside out and nobody knew that was going to happen but we did know that we were all going to change mm-hmm. and by the way this is the perfect time to try that change because if it doesn't work Throw it under the COVID bus. Call it sick too. And that's fine because we've got a moment to be able to do that in my mind. Mm-hmm. It feels like we've got another 12 months, 18 months of this before people feel like they come out of the, the COVID crazy and the haze comes down and we, we're not in this constant state of fuzzy. But we can really re-engineer the thinking. I, I truly believe that. You have permission to fail almost right now. Yeah, Absolutely you do. And if you don't believe me, you know, the hottest topic today is, you know, doji coins and bloody NFTs. <laughs> oh, God. You know that what I mean? That might be another episode, Blockchain I think. Blockchain and Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah very well could be. <laughs> but you know what? So, I, I mean, it's, it, is, it is crazy. It is crazy. And lovely. Yeah. Sorry, Shane. I think it's fun talking to you because we're able to go into the Wayback Machine with you, right? We just talked about GeoCities for crying out loud. <laughs> Let's steady talk on, about... Steady. Yeah, <laughs> you've been talking about QR codes. You've been writing and speaking about oh, yeah. the reemergence of QR <laughs> codes lately. Yeah, what's going on there? Obviously, we had to have them at restaurants to scan a menu. But why do you think they are suddenly having a a renaissance, as it were? And what do you think that it's going to look like now? QR codes now versus when they were the big new hyped thing that never actually did anything. Jenna, I was exactly like everyone else when it came out. I'm like, this square, uh, rough-looking barcode thing is either going to be amazing or a big fat joke. I had one on my business card. I had a business card that had an NFC chip in it. Nobody had an app. Nobody right. had a shit about it. <laughs> right. Excuse me, Shingy, if I may, we printed QR codes in the yellow pages. I just want to say that out loud. <laughs> Did you really? Oh, yeah. Make no mistake. Good on you, mate. We, we, many, many years ago, were responsible for printing I'm, QR codes. As a I'm ashamed that I wasn't even here then. In the yellow pages. We may edit that out. Nice we one. Nice disclaimer, Jenna. Nice disclaimer. All right. So when was the last time you went to Asia, you white people? Uh, uh, Touche. Never. Uh, probably Not a while 15, ago. A long time ago. Yeah, 15, 16 years ago. Okay. All right, so around that time you were putting QR codes in yellow pages, Dan, you probably got that idea because Asia is proliferated with QR. You can't bump left or right without having some sort of interaction with QR code. 
even go back to Oz. You're in Australia now? No, no, I'm in Toronto. All right, all right, the other Australia. But if you go home, contactless is everywhere, isn't it, mate? Mm. Touch and go and all that sort of rubbish. Awesome, awesome. Here, how does that work for us? Genius, isn't it? You pull out your contactless credit card, you put it down, it's like the thing doesn't beep, you tap it again, it's like something's wrong with it, you're standing there in a queue, and you're like, oh, my God, you're the guy who puts it in with the pin and chip still. It starts touching the gross keypad. Gross. Uh, we are miles behind the rest of the world who, who've not wanted to be contactless. The reason why Archon QR is really, really, really simple. If you watch a TV ad today that's telling you a 1-800 number to call or they're giving you www.forgetthisurl.com forward slash 20% off coupon or rubbish, good luck mm-hmm. in trying to validate that. But the modern QR code, is a, it's dope for two reasons. One... All of us have scanned one, right? Oh, man. In the last year, you've probably scanned more than you have in your entire life combined. <laughs> right? <laughs> totally. But you haven't downloaded an app. Yeah. All you've done is opened up your phone, right. you pointed at that thing, and voila. Right. That's one. Firstly, that's been around for a while. Secondly, what's, the camera is developed. Secondly, what's amazing about them is you can program. So if you do a QR code in the yellow pages today, Dan, they even exist. Okay. But anyway, you do a QR code somewhere. Let's say you do a QR code for a DM, direct mail yeah. piece. And that direct mail piece was for some sort of thing. But it goes out the door, it hits 10,000 bloody households, and you realise, my God, that thing is tanking. we got another 100,000 already in the mail. What do we do? You reprogram the QR, the QR code mm-hmm. to go to something else. Mm-hmm. What a genius idea. Although it's locked in ink, it's not locked in its dimension. Right. And that's what I love about them is it's physical, yes, but it's dimension on the way it works digitally is completely ubiquitous to what you need it to be. Mm-hmm. And that's, for me, the most amazing thing about them. And, you know, thank God the design's updated too. But the the other thing that's interesting about them is that I think it was Visa or somebody, maybe MasterCard, both of them published similar types of content that said it takes about three tries for somebody to start to believe in habits and then about 70% of those people actually adopt that habit, that sort of number, which gives me faith that, because I'm still the guy trying to do the, you know, pay like this because the bloody, you know, Ingenico terminal still doesn't take a thing mm-hmm. or whatever. It looks like it was built in the 70s anyway. You know, but you go to Square or you go to Stripe, the thing is just a tap and boom, you're there. So when you think about the behaviour, it's coming. So And if you can't do it, if you can't have contactless at that point, the beautiful thing about codes is that it can work on multiple multiple dimensions. And And... You, you, you can't go left or right without bumping into them and whether you're boarding a plane or you're going to a restaurant. I don't think restaurant codes are going to be forever. I mean, I honestly, I would prefer to see a, re- a menu and the reason for that is I can actually mull over the wine list and I'm also a guy who doesn't want to bring out my phone when I'm having dinner with my family. Mm-hmm. I'm screenless as much as I possibly can. But there are plenty of other places that I think it should live in and a place that's really amazing. But, yeah, when I'm looking at a wine list, it's nothing like a gorgeous big bloody menu as opposed to a little thing on my... I have the smallest iPhone anyway. I'm an iPhone mini kind of cat. So, yeah. Jen, Jen, does that help yeah. you? If I if I give you some context there for me, it's really it's not about the, it's not about the code, sister. It's not about the code. It's the post scan experience. That for me is like awesome, awesome, awesome. The real challenge with that is it just nobody's really understood that, and I think that's yeah. really if people get their head around yeah. that. Wow, it'll just help the whole dimension of particularly because by the way, a lot of brands still advertise in places today that are offline, and most of your life is lived offline. Yep. Mm-hmm. You can't go take you can take your phone on holiday, but your phone isn't your holiday. Mm-hmm. It happens in the real world, mm-hmm. and so codes help bridge that in my mind. And yeah, I'm a big fan of them. What else you got? 
So GeoCities? Going back to that? Yeah, yeah, it was it was angel fire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so Shing, let's round this out. I, let me ask you this: What about the current marketing landscape frustrates you the most? And and the flip side of that, what inspires you? Why do you keep doing this? Uh, great, thank you. Uh, two ripper questions. Uh, what frustrates me most? People can't get their head around what data looks like in a way that makes them feel like they can make those decisions. There's a massive gap in that fluidity. So what businesses will do, I think, smart businesses, will use data internally to transform their organisations. That's what's going to inspire me most. I'm not talking about disruption or brand experience or any that sort of thing I've talked about before. Mm-hmm. I mean true transformation because if you're able to collect the data and understand that that insight should be actioned upon, you are ridiculous if you don't do it, in my mind, because it's there. And if you're not going to do it, somebody else is going to do it, and that somebody else is probably your competitor. Mm -hmm. And there are more people bumping up to other companies that felt like they weren't in that category before that maybe are in that category now, and suddenly you may have been a leader for a while and no longer you are. Mm -hmm. And that's just because you're not – Getting further away from data decisions means you're further away from a better result, period. As a creative, that's been very, very hard for me to get my head around because I love gut instinct. I love saying, I think that's just a great idea. We should run with it. And then you go on a holiday and hope to God it works and it doesn't work. It's like, my God, what a mistake. Let's go on. Let's move on with our lives. That is the industry of marketing, creative and media for the last 20 years. My friends, in the last 12 months, that has completely all gone away. We are now moving into a totally different paradigm. The only challenge is the muscle memory from brands is still in a paradigm of probably go back to my old media planning ways. Right, and you know I've got these young I've got these young strat developers who are going to only sort of help plan on properties they care about because that's where they spend all their time thumbing through their life on a phone. They'll do some TV stuff because that's where they can go home and turn on the TV at nine o'clock at night and realize that 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 is what daddy's done and I feel good about that or some rubbish. Mm-hmm. And that I think personally, and I'm I'm not jumping on TV. I'm just I've not been part of that culture because I just think there's nothing good on there. But I do think that that is important to understand that this culture is moving way too fast for them to understand that. Mm-hmm. And anybody who can get inside the creative culture as well, as I said, to so understand that it is about that creative and how to actually create the creators around that. And I don't care what brand it is. We have to think about that smarter. Mm-hmm. I also think that, you know, there's all these old models coming back too, mate, like, you know, partnerships, strategic partnerships in a 360. Okay, what does that mean? You know, a good example of that was Fitbit and Thermos. You know, you have this Fit- Fitbit that gives you only certain guesstimations, but now that it's connected to my smart bottle, it can tell me that I'm actually four bottles behind you know, my proper hydration ratio for my body weight, et cetera, et cetera, or my KPIs I'm trying to deal with, that starts to feel like 360. When you go the other way and think, well, hey, what, what, what can you do as a brand that feels more like I'm doing something that's purposeful? Well, you need to probably collaborate. And I don't mean collaborate with, quote, unquote, an influencer to try and amplify your brand. Maybe you need to do that with something else that feels like it's complementary to the brand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it, because there's, a, there's some breadth that can happen to it. It's not just one thing that does it, does it really well. It widens the aperture to say maybe we can actually have a better, a better mind share of, of somebody's of – really of somebody's need if we can help support that. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see more and more of that. I used to talk about a lot of that around CES, to be fair, because for me it was about shiny objects. Sure. 
I think it's less about that and it's more about these partnerships. Today we just get caught up to think that partnerships about celebrity and celebrities about influence. And that's true in some dynamic, but it's not the only thing. Shingy, it's been a delight and I've, I've confirmed well, that's it. You I've guys are going to get that's with it. My, uh, with my two colleagues Dang. here. And um, yes, we are all pregnant now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> my vaccine didn't protect means. me against that. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Shingy. Thanks for being here. Thank you from Dan, Jenna, myself. Thank you for being part of Inside the Funnel. You've been listening to Inside the Funnel with Jenna Watson, Dan Temby, and Nasser Salul. Until next time, don't forget to like, subscribe, and connect with the AC wherever you see us online. Uh-huh.